Hope uh, it's good to be back. You know, uh, it's uh, everybody asked me, Pastor Lee, how did your sabbatical go? I was sick my entire sabbatical, and the day I came back, I got well. I'm not sure what that's saying. I don't know what it's saying, but definitely it's a it's a directive to me that I sure am glad to be back. My goodness, it's wonderful to feel good and be able to interact with people that I love and care for. Uh, thank you so much for letting me have that break. And now I'm uh, greatly enjoying kind of getting back into the process here and what's taking place. As you know, uh, it was really Eric's heart to put together this particular series that we're calling this story. We walk through the entire Bible and give us a clear understanding of how God has worked, how God wants to work, and how God will continue to work, both in our lives and the lives of all the people around us. So we started off and we began to look at the issue of creation. We had this wonderful, wonderful picture of God with Adam and Eve living together, walking together, loving together, this great, great thing, and then sent it in and the fall took place. As sin entered into the world, devastation and destruction began to happen. Brokenness began to take place within the entire earth. And so we saw God responding to that brokenness. And we have a flood that takes place. And Moses, Noah is set aside with his sons as the only people that make it through the flood. And Peter even tells us that it's a picture of baptism itself. Now, how far that goes, that's another message entirely. How the flood represents the picture of baptism and how Jesus continues to take care of us in the midst of difficult situations that would otherwise bring death into our life. So no more rain was the call from God. It's never going to rain again. The Tower of Babel takes place. We have a confusion of languages. And then Abraham is called out by God and given an unconditional covenant where God says to him, the covenant I make with you will go forever and all people will be found righteous on the basis of faith just as you have been found righteous on the basis of faith. Following Abraham, we have his son Isaac born. Remember the promised one. So this child of the promise is born to Abraham and his special wife who had laughed before. Okay, so she is, he is born. Isaac, the promised child, is born. And God, at one point in time, calls for him to give up his child for him, to sacrifice his child for him, which is beyond comprehension with our God. You've got to understand something, as this will continue on. The idea of a human sacrifice to God is totally abhorrent. Can't imagine it. This is the image of God. We are the image bearers of God himself. But something special is happening here in relationship to faith and in relationship to how God is trying to help everybody else that will come into place thousands of years later when they recognize his only son given up as a sacrifice for all of mankind. So Isaac is the first picture we get that the Messiah would have to be sacrificed for all of mankind. His blood would have to be shed so that we might be forgiven. Following that, Isaac has children. His children, we, we find, are coming to play here, and the result comes where they are placed into Egypt for some 430 years in a place of slavery. But this causes Israel to be born. See, one of the necessities of putting into place here was so God could establish a nation of people, millions of people, So 430 years later, Moses will be called by God to call out his people. By the way, the word word Moses means to call out. 
So he's to call out his people. He cries out to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says what? No, it's not happening. Passover takes place. Sacrifice happens. And then Pharaoh says what? Go. Get out of here. Take our money. Just go. No more of you. They leave. Pharaoh changes his mind, goes after God's people, and God protects them, provides for them, and over and over shows them that they are to be called his people, my people. They find themselves wandering. They get to a mountain where Moses leads them to, Mount Sinai, and they, there they are provided with what we refer to as the law or the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on the mountain. God gives him the Ten Commandments. He comes back down to share with the people. He'd been up there 40 days. The people thought he was dead. So they had put together a golden calf by which they'd begin to worship. Moses comes down. He's horrified, drops the the plates of the law, these things, broken into pieces, cries out to the people, says, how can you have done this? He goes back up the mountain, speaks with God, asks God to forgive them. And God does and goes through a process. Interestingly enough, and I'll mention this later, he asked God to take his life as atonement for what the Israelites had done. And God says, basically, that could never happen. But I will forgive them and we'll go forward. Now, Moses is a bright guy. And he's figuring out God's intention and God's plan for the future. So we've gotten this far. The Mosaic Law is given. The people begin to recognize that God has laid out for them a governing set of laws, a civil set of laws, a moral set of laws. But what they haven't received yet is clarification on how God will deal with the issue of sin, sacrifice, and salvation. You see, now they recognize what sin is. You have to remember this. Prior to this time, there had been no declaration from God as to exactly what was right and what was wrong. What was sin and what was not So the people in this position of living by their own conscience, or as it says in Judges later, what was right in their own eyes. And that was the difficulty was taking place. So God says, you're my people. You're to live by my code of conduct. This is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to respond one to another. And this is how you respond to me. So now God begins to show them the way in which they can have a relationship with God the Father on a regular basis, by dealing with their sin. And he sets up a series of sacrifices that have to take place in order for them to make atonement for the wrongs that they have done. Does that make sense? Now, that's a big bunch I gave you there, by the way. I walked all the way through a huge amount of material. But I want you to get that because that's the background as we come into this next step of understanding. And this understanding today is in relationship to the book of Leviticus. How many of you have ever read the book of Leviticus? And the rest of you are going, and I never will. Okay? The book of Leviticus was placed in the Old Testament so that you would never get any farther along in your reading. You get there and you go, are you kidding me? This is crazy. And you go back to the New Testament. That's what happens. You see, the book of Leviticus was actually a manual for the priests. That will help you immensely when you do it. It's a manual for the priests and how to help the people find their way to God. 
the necessary sacrifices that were being put together so that they could enter into a relationship with God, have their sins forgiven, have their conscience cleansed, have their shame removed, and have their guilt put away. That's pretty good stuff, right? That was necessary for the people of Israel and the priests who were responsible to be the mediators between God and man so that they could approach God and begin to have a definite relationship with him. So the book of Leviticus is trying to tell us three simple things. It's trying to tell us, first of all, how to deal with sin. Sin is breaking of God's laws, and the laws are, as we understand it now, simple. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You must love your neighbor as what? Yourself. So that's the basic law. So when you break that law, you come before God and say, God, I broke the law again. God says, that's okay. Here's what you need to do to make restitution for what you've done wrong. And they would go through that process, dealing with sin. The way in which they would deal with it, they had to make a sacrifice. Say sacrifice with me. Sacrifice. Okay. They had to make a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is very, very specific in relationship to certain issues. And that's what Leviticus is talking about. Exactly how you need to do what you need to do. Some of them would be thank offerings. I want to thank God for what all he's done. And they would show you, this is how you do that. This is the sacrifice that you would make to God to give thanks to him. Okay, you get in the picture now? Sin, sacrifice, and then lastly, salvation. And salvation in this idea is about us having a relationship with God. When it's talking about salvation, when I use that term here, it's talking about having the ability to talk with God and walk with God and enjoy God and rejoice in who he is and what he's done and help him to accomplish the purpose and plans that he has for each one of you as he made you. Now, in relationship to sacrifice, because that's the primary thing we're going to learn today, I want you to look at this verse here. This is the primary verse. It's out of Hebrews 9.22, and what he does is he kind of puts into a one-word statement what all of Leviticus is all about, and he says this, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with what? Blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that's the cry throughout Leviticus. It's saying there is no shedding of blood. So we look at these old elements. That's the first aspect of these old elements of sacrifice and atonement. And what I'm going to start with, I'm going to back up a little bit, and I'm going to go back to Passover. You guys all remember what Passover is? The Passover was that special remembrance declaration of all the people of Israel reminding themselves that God had set them free from slavery, that they were no longer slaves, that God had brought them out of Egypt and into their own land, had provided for them, in fact, specific areas of land themselves where before they were slave owners, now they are landowners. They were set free with a purpose in mind, with an intention in mind. They're no longer slaves. They're now God's own people. So this Passover was the process by which they reminded themselves of what God had done. And the Passover would always be done, according to God's directive, at the first of the year, at the beginning of the year, they would go through this simple or complicated process as you look at it in relationship to this thing. So on the first day of the first month, they were required to go through a process by which they would take a lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood, put it into a bucket, And they would put over their thresholds the blood of the lamb. 
And then they would go through a process by which they would eat exactly what God had told them to in relationship to the lamb that was killed. And then they would go through a process of drinking certain cups and clarification of all that God had done bringing them out of Egypt. Now, this is the first clear picture of Jesus and his sacrifice as the one and only Son of God that would release all of God's people from the slavery of sin. Because the only ones that died to set them free were the what? Do you remember who it was? Firstborn. The firstborn sons. Jesus is not only the firstborn, he'll be the one and only Son of God who'll be sacrificed for all mankind so they might be set free from the slavery of sin in this case being held down and held back with the inability to have a relationship with God. So every year would begin with the Israelites with a simple reminder. Okay, God has set you free, and you are his people. You're the only ones that will go through this process that we refer to as the Passover. In fact, as time would go on, this Passover would be a declaration of the Messiah who was to come. And they began to understand that one day, the Passover will clarify to us the coming of the Messiah, and all this will be done and finished with. Again, they were getting it, but they didn't really get it. They understood it, but they didn't fully understand it. Now, there's, there's a variety of interesting elements here. Um, I think most of us understand the Jewish people thought when Jesus would come that he would release them from captivity not of sin, but from captivity of the Romans in this case, while they were waiting when Jesus did come. And that would be, they would set him up as a glorious new army and they'd overcome everybody else and he would become the ruler of the entire earth with the Israelites as his people who would conquer everybody and everything. Okay? Now, the process by which this would take place is, is we could go into all kinds of things. We're not going to right now, but begin to understand that that's the picture or the idea of what was going on. So every time at the first of the year, there would be a Passover, a special time, in which the people every year over and over would take of this remembrance. They do this to this day. They continue to share in the Passover time. We'll talk a little about more and more of that as we get closer to sharing uh, in the Lord's Supper. So this would take place in the first of the month. Now, how many of you guys have ever heard of Rosh Hashanah? Now, when does that take place? Yeah, September is right, but it's the first. It's interesting. Rosh Hashanah is actually a New Year's statement. Now, there's a problem here. You kind of go, well, Pastor, didn't you tell me that the Passover is supposed to take place on the beginning of the year? Yes, because the Jewish year is not like our calendar year. In fact, the Jewish years is made up, the best way I can explain it to you that helps me, is there, it has two Two New Year times. So it has a calendar year and a fiscal year that they celebrate through. The calendar year, okay, the calendar year we'll call, is when the Passover is given. The first month, the first day, the Passover is made take place. The seventh month, they would have another New Year's. We'll call that the fiscal year. Okay, and they have another New Year's Day, and that's called Rosh Hashanah, or the sounding of the trumpets. After the trumpets were sounded, then they would go into what we refer to as Yom Kippur which simply means Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement. I give you that background so now you have a better understanding of where we're going to go at this point in time. So we have the Passover given. All of Israel would go through the Passover every year, beginning of the year. You do the Passover, remind yourself of what God had done and what he was going to do in the future. 
after the Passover is done, everybody would go through a variety of sacrificial system. Okay? They would go through the sacrificial system from that day forth until the seventh month. So if you had an issue that went, you'd come to the priest, whatever it was, you wanted to give a thanks, you committed a sin, a variety of things that go on, and this is the book of Leviticus. It says, here's how you can deal with your issues and your problems with God and with one another. So throughout the year, this continual and ongoing process is one in which the sacrificial system is followed, you come to the priest, you get an okay with God for now until the end of the year. That's when you would get your official grade of saved or not saved at the end of the year. So you're going through this process, and it says, tells us over and over, the life of the creature is in the blood. And so there's a lot of blood being shed. If you read through Leviticus, it's 88 times the blood is given, the blood is given, the blood is shed. The blood, it's like, man, this is one bloody, bloody book. It's difficult to read if you really envision it. Those of you that are visual, you're going, I can't handle this. If you're PETA, oh my goodness. It's bulls, it's lambs, it's sheep, it's dogs. You know, it goes on and on and on in relationship to all this blood. But the system is dealing with the issue of sin and consciousness, conscience itself, responses to God, how to be who we were called to be. You see, it's not just a response to our sin. It's a response also of, of gratefulness and receiving a peace from God. So we all desire to have this peace from God. We've done wrong. We come before him. We confess. God, I'm so sorry. And you say, okay, this is what you need to do now. So you go through that system all year long. The process would continue. And you'd find yourself struggling with the issue of sin because you would continue to sin. And you go, Lord, now I know what right is and what wrong is. And for some reason, I'm unable to appropriately love you and love my neighbor as myself. What is happening here? Let me give you the clearest picture that I've ever been able to come with in relationship to sin. Sin is a contaminant that spiritually takes a hold of our blood and it causes to be something that doesn't know any longer give life. Instead, it brings death. So when sin comes into your life, it contaminates your blood and the result is death. And you begin the process of dying. It's the same picture of disease. Okay, You're moved away from You're broken down. You become sick. And this is the picture of sin in relationship to our life and our responses one to another and with God. And God says, when sin happens, it contaminates your blood. And the only way that I can cleanse that blood for a temporary period of time is for you to give the blood of somebody else in place of yours. So it tells us there must be blood given and that blood would be brought forth either from a lamb for a from a ram or from a dove or some other animal would have to give its life's blood for you. And that's the only way God says you could deal with sin was with the sacrifice and then you would gain salvation. My, my very first ministry, uh, very, very difficult. I was, in fact, it's where I met my wife and uh, it was like, I think I was a month and a half in and one of our elders uh, was found with cancer and he had leukemia. And he was dying because his blood would no longer respond correctly. It was bringing him literally to death. He was dying because of the blood that he had. And the process that would go on back then, and that was about, yeah, it was, that was a few years ago, two or three, 30 years ago plus. Uh, so at that point in time, the process would go to the doctor, and they would literally take out his blood and replace it with a transfusion of fresh blood. This is prior to HIV. 
Okay? They replaced it with the transmission of fresh blood. And then he was okay. The first time he did it, he was okay for like almost two months. He was great. And then he had to go back in. They said, ah, oh, we've got to do it again. And they did it again. But the second time, it only lasted about a month. The third time, it lasted about two weeks. And I remember sitting with him, and he was crying and struggling and with the awareness that death was coming his way. And there was no way he could stop it because his blood was killing him. And that is the exact picture that God gives us. He says, you have sinned and your blood has been contaminated and there's no way that you will ever be able to experience life because of what you've done. And we're like, Lord, how can we respond to this? And he says, you need a blood transfusion. You desperately need that. So what I will do now is I will provide it by my miraculous ability through the blood given of lambs and ram and dove and whatever, the sacrifice you'll set, I will give a temporary point in time in which you will be able to have life for a short period of time and forgiveness for me as a result of responding correctly. Okay? So now you begin to understand, here's this system that's set up. The people are following the system. They're going, okay, as long as we do this, we get forgiveness. And when they do it, they experience a cleansing of their conscience. They experience a removal of guilt. They experience a a lessening of shame. And they go, hey, this is wonderful. The struggle is I continue to work before God with sin in my heart my life. How can I change this issue? Next step. The high priest in a thing called Yom Kippur. That's the third thing. So we get the Passover begins. Focus, awareness. God has set us free. Look what he has done. He's redeemed you through the blood of his son. Next step, sacrificial system. Got to go through this all the time, every day. All, yeah, it's on and on and on. I have to go forth, bring sacrifices to God to cleanse you from this sin. Third step, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, done at the end of every year or the beginning of the fiscal year, depending on how you look at it, Okay. The process here is a very simple one. The high priest, the only one who could do it, would go into the tent of meeting where God's presence was supposed to be at. And he would bring with him a ram. And he would slice the throat of the, of the ram. Sorry about that, but that's what happened. The blood would fall out. He would take the blood, respond appropriately to God by putting it in particular spots, and his sin would then be atoned for. Just his. He would also take with him two goats two goats the first goat after he had atoned for his sin before god by killing of okay of the of the ram in this case by killing of that then the second thing that would take place he would kill the goat and as he sliced the throat of the goat that would be given for atonement for all of the people of israel everything that happened that year from that time on they would have their sins atoned for by the shedding of this blood One simple goat. The goat's blood would be done. And then he would take the the other goat and he would walk out of the tent of meeting. And all the people were watching. All of Israel would be here for this. And they were watching to see if he made it. That God had not taken his life. Had not decided to destroy him this year because of all the evil they had done. And as the high priest would come out, there would be a great shout. And a wondrous direction from all the people saying, glory to God. We're okay, we're forgiven again. And then he would take this lamb 
And he would place both hands upon the lamb. And he would say, I place the sins of all Israel upon this goat. I said lamb, it's a goat. Place it upon this goat. And they take the goat and it would be sent off into the wilderness. And that goat was called what? The scapegoat. Okay? The scapegoat. I find it's just... uh, the amazing structure here. So let's read through this in Leviticus. It goes like this. Leviticus. Okay, we're in Leviticus 17. This is how Aaron... I know it's going to take you a bit to get this. Oh, get over there, Leviticus 17. Pastor, you're, you're killing me. I know. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on this sacred linen turnip with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him, put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull, as we said here, for his own sin offering, to make atonement for himself and for his household. Then he's to take the two goats. And present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one for the scapegoat. Aaron will bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord, sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. All right? Every year this would take place. Year after year after year. Three animals, bull, two goats. Process would begin to happen. And the people's sin would be removed, as Psalm 103 perhaps says, as far as the east is from the west. The sins are taken away out of the camp. People would see this year after year after year. Now, uh, interesting now, if you guys understand the Jewish process is happening now because they don't have a temple and they don't have a high priest. There hasn't been a high priest since 70 A.D. So they have no high priest to go through the atonement process. And they have no temple. So you have a problem here. How are you going to do the atonement process? So the Jewish people today go through an entirely different process by which they deal with this. And they had to add some things to it to make it seem more uh, appropriate, I think. And I think they, they were right in that. They recognized something's missing here. So... What they would have is Rosh Hashanah is New Year's Day, and then you would have what's called eight days of awe. And during those eight days of awe, prior to the time in which you would have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they would make reconciliation, they would repent of things they'd done wrong, and they would give gifts to the temple okay, to, make, to pay for all the things that they had failed to do during the year. This is a big gift day for the temple, by the way. Obviously, that the priest can go appropriately so. All these things would take place. And then there's an interesting uh, statement here. It tells us at the end here, the Talmud says, Yom Kippur atones for those who repent, but does not atone for those who do not repent. Now, interesting process there. None of this is, is following the scriptural directive in relationship to blood atoning for sins. But they can't do that anymore, so they stopped it. Now, on the other point, Something that bothers me when I looked at it, it always did bother me, and that was this. All the sins of Israel are going to be atoned how? Two stinking goats. 
real, I just want you to think about it. I, I mean, we've done the blood thing, cause we're, so we're kind of getting into the whole thing. Two goats. Folks, I've had goats. <laughs> Killing them is a good thing. Goats are a pain in the neck. They are like, you've got to be kidding me. Kill the goat. Get rid of the goat. So we've got two goats here, and I'm going, God, surely, you're, you're talking about the sin of all creation, mankind, and you're doing two goats? What is happening? And I think I know what's happening. I think God is saying, duh, you can't do it with two goats. I'm just reminding you, the blood is there, but it's not going to be enough. Something far, far greater has to take place. But the people of Israel are going, but what? How? How will it happen? Isaiah gets the first inkling of how it's going to take place. Because you have to understand, remind you again, that the idea of a human sacrifice is totally abhorrent to God. He could never even comprehend this picture of, it, of an image bearer of his being sacrificed as an atonement for the sins of all the people, he go, that is a horrible picture, a horrible idea. These are my children. It could never, ever happen. And besides that, they would only atone for the sins of themselves. So what are we to do? Isaiah 53. I want you to turn there. Isaiah 53. Because I think this is such a big deal here. If, if you go back to the um, time in which the law was given... And Moses comes down, I told you that story comes down, and then he goes back up to God and he says, God, take my life as an atonement for what they've done wrong. God said, I can't do that. But I think Moses had the right idea. As a prophet of God, he thoroughly began to get it that somebody who was incredible, and Moses was, but he wasn't incredible enough, was going to have to give up their life so that all of mankind might be saved. And God has set up this picture of the sacrificial system, of the Passover, of the high priest, to prepare us for the truth of who God would be and what he would done. To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? Who has believed our message? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There's nothing beautiful Nothing majestic about his appearance. There was nothing to attract us to him. You know, it's the Jesus we have in the films today. That guy is really good looking. Doesn't represent Jesus as he's seen throughout the Old Testament. Not at all. We are not attracted to him concerning his appearance. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with the deepest, deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised. We didn't care. But the truth was, it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sins that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But no, he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed all of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. But the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed. He was treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not even open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. 
No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people, even though he had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal, but he was put in a rich man's grave. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him, to cause him grief. And when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that he has accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make possible for all to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honor of a victorious soldier. Because he exposed himself to death, counted among the rebels, he bore the sin of many and interceded for us. Wow. When Isaiah wrote that, all the people of Israel could not comprehend what he was talking about. And to this day, to this day, a veil is held over their eyes, and they cannot see what is so apparent to us. Who is this person that's talked about in Isaiah 53? Jesus. It is so obvious, it is so clear exactly what he did and what he accomplished. You see, we're learning about the power of sin and its impact, the need for sacrifice and how it works, the acquiring of salvation and a renewed relationship with God. So we transition to the New Testament. It says, therefore, Hebrews 4.14, since we have a high priest, I want to say again, the Jews no longer have a what? They don't have a high priest anymore. God made sure of it. He made it totally clear who Jesus was. You talk to a Jewish person and say, you don't even have a high priest. What happened to your high priest? Jesus is our high priest. He's gone through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith, therefore, that we profess. We have a high priest. And there's the switch now, the new elements. Sacrifice and atonement in the New Testament. Well, what took place? Jesus, Luke 22.7. You know the picture. We've come to the end of time as far as Jesus is concerned. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb has to be sacrificed. So now we have this new beginning. Where before, we had the Passover going on. It was going to go on, appeared to be, kind of forever without any real ending to it. But now it says, the new Passover began to come. Luke 22, verses 14 through 16. Here it says, when the hour came, Jesus said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover. This Passover. Why was he so eager? Because he knew that this would be the fulfillment. This was the true Passover. It's always intended fulfillment, which would be seen in Jesus giving up his life willingly for all of mankind and to set all of people free from sin. And not only that, this would be the final Yom Kippur because the new priest makes the final atonement for all the sins of the people and pays for it all 
And not only does he become the one, the high priest, who provides atonement through this shed blood, he would also become the lamb that would be sent into the wilderness, in his case, into death itself. And so he would die and take the sins of all people into hell and leave it there as he came back to us and provide for all who would believe removal of their sins, forgiveness of every area in their life. So Jesus talks about, this is the last one I will eat until it finds fulfillment. This is the last one I'll eat until it finds fulfillment. And so we begin to see that the reason for the Passover was to show us God's ability to rescue us from sin and its penalty, death. But they're always required to sacrifice. And the sacrifice would be Jesus himself, a willing sacrifice, a shedding of his own blood. As he says, I am the one sent to take care of all the issues of mankind. Something that God had put into place at the beginning of time. Immediately after Adam and Eve had sinned, God put into place what would have to happen. His own son would have to die so that mankind might live. And he understood this as he gave the curse to Adam and to Eve. He knew exactly what would have to be done. And he pictured that in his mind. I'm going to have to put to death my very own son. Because that's the only way. The new Passover. But there's also a new sacrificial system. This is the change that happens. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds us that I received from the Lord Jesus what I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body. This is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, where previously the Passover was the beginning of the year, a declaration about how God gave Israel freedom from slavery through the sacrifice of the Lamb. And then the daily sacrifice declared our need for peace from God and our inability to obtain it on our own. Now... As Yom Kippur was done, which was the declaration of the need for a final sacrifice every year to redeem us and all the nation from the finality of death and sin itself, Jesus said, I'm going to fulfill all the requirements of the entire sacrificial system. I'm going to be able to do it all. Everything will take place. I will fulfill all the requirements of the law. I will provide for all who will receive it the ability to have a relationship with God, freed from the penalty of sins and the requirements of the law. And he'll take these sacrificial declarations of God and turn all these things into one new declaration. No longer is a system that we have to follow every day by day by day. No longer is the high priest that every year has to go back in and go over and over and over and over. He says, once and for all. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so the four cups that would be drank during the Passover, out of Exodus 6, out of the simple he will statements, he will, the Messiah, redeem us. And they would eat bitter herbs, talking about the bondage that they needed release from. He will rescue us. And they would break the dip, dip the bread into the sauce. And the lamb would be brought out to eat. He will guide us. And they'd have a prayer and they'd drink the third cup and they'd sing Psalm 115 through 118. And now Jesus breaks in and he says, all this has been fulfilled. It's done. No more. There's no longer needed those three cups. 
I've done it all. There's only one left. And today, this will finish everything. Drink this cup of restoration, of reconciliation, of atonement. The final cup is now the only cup. It is sufficient. There's no longer a Passover supper. There's only what we refer to as the Lord's Supper provided by the new high priest who provides us with a mediation between God the Father and man so that everyone who comes to him, he immediately presents them to God and he immediately allows them to gain a new blood that totally changes everything within them and they become literally a child of God, a relationship with God the Father. This miraculous thing. So Romans, Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, present your body a living and holy sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because we have this new covenant with God. In Hebrews, he says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. I will put my laws in their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they will be my people, my children. This new covenant. And what happens, miraculously enough, as we share in this wonderful time we're going to do, God says there's literally a change of blood, a transfusion that takes place. So that now when I drink of this blood, when I, when I eat of this wondrous bread, new life is given me, life eternal. Life that can't be contaminated anymore. Life remarkable, powerful, where we become immune, immune to the results of sin. People say, huh? I said, yes, you become immune to the results of sin. And that's what happens to us. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are changed. And as John reminds us over and over again, it's not that we won't sin again, but now we no longer receive the results of sin, which is what? Death. Death in our relationship to God the Father says, no, when you sin, ask forgiveness instantly. You're renewed. You are my son. You are my daughter. And so we have this wonderful relationship with our spiritual advisor and priest, Jesus himself, one by one. And so the new high priest, the mediator of the new covenant, for all those who are called, we get to receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set us free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So he's telling us that this mediator between God and all people, the mediator who solves all of our conflicts and struggles, is Jesus himself, a forever Yom Kippur priestly mediator. This wondrous thing that God gives us. He says, I am here, and how can you not have everything resolved? I will not just take care of your problem. I will change you yourself. So Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. He gave it to the apostles, and he said, this is my body, which I am giving for you. Do this to remember me. For God, Colossians 1.20, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself everything, everybody, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So we have shalom with God because of the blood of Jesus. And when we eat the bread, we honor him as our God and our high priest. The sacrifice that is given, the one and only bread. 
and the one and only cup. And that's the cry of God. So we find ourselves reading this Corinthian text again, and I say, for whenever you eat this bread, because we as people who understand the Jewish process knew that you had to go through a process prior to this time to which you could receive forgiveness of your sins. He says, but if you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you remind yourself of the sacrifice of God, the body on which the sins of all God's people would be placed, Jesus himself, and then he would be taken to the Sheol, the place of death where it could never be returned again. And Jesus cries out at that point in time, it is what? Finished. It's done. It's over. And so we eat the bread. And then we proclaim the bloodshed so that we can be forgiven. So that we can be renewed. Our hearts replaced with his heart. He said, I will give my people a heart like my heart. The blood provided for all of us to receive forgiveness and cleansing and a new blood transference, a new blood transfusion for all of us to overcome the virus of sin. One that's given that never has to be replaced again. So it isn't next month I look at you and I go, you don't look so good. And two weeks later I'm going, oh my Lord. And then you die. Jesus says, never again, never again will my people die as a result of sin if they respond to me and recognize who I am. So right now we're going to share in this time of recognizing what God has done. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And quite simply, we're going to go left and we're going to go right and we're going to go to the back. So we have three different tables that are taking place. I'm going to ask some of my Elders to come up and take this table. I want some others to take table in the back. So Tim and Susan will take this one here. John, you want to take in the back? And Eric, would you come down here with your wife, please? Wonderful. And today as we come down... There's a variety of ways to come. Sometimes I take off my shoes and I go, boy, Lord, I remind myself what a wondrous thing it is to walk with God. And I want to take off my shoes in recognition of His glory. And sometimes I come up and I just touch the cross and I say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And sometimes I kneel before I take some bread. You know, it's whatever you decide that you need to do. But this is a wondrous opportunity to declare who God is and what He has done in your life. This is the time. So I urge you, stand up right now, move to the right and to the left, go to the back, take a bit of bread, take the juice, go back and sit down, and we will take it all together. We'll take it all together once we have received the bread and the juice.